now this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for justice professionals and anyone interested in learning more about forensic science, innovative technology, current research, and actionable strategies to improve the criminal justice system. In episode three, Just Science sat down with Amanda Moore and Dr. Alex Kratolsky from the Center for Forensic Science Research and Education to discuss the analytical and interpretive challenges associated with emerging drug threats. The Center for Forensic Science Research and Education, otherwise known as the CFSRE, oversees a collaborative effort to better understand emerging drug threats. CFSRE researchers Amanda Moore and Dr. Alex Kratolsky are working on a project called NPS Discovery, a model for monitoring, responding, and forecasting emerging novel psychoactive substances. Listen along as our guests return to Just Science to discuss NPS Discovery, analytical challenges associated with novel psychoactive substances, and the value of community partnerships. This season is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here is your host, Paige Pressler-Jur. Hello, and welcome to Just Science. I'm your host, Paige Pressler-Jur, with the Forensic Technology Center of Excellence, a program of the National Institute of Justice. Our topic today is a discussion of novel psychoactive substances as emerging drug threats and how they represent significant analytical and interpretive challenges to forensic and clinical toxicologists. We hope this discussion will provide ideas and guidance for communities such as those with the Bureau of Justice Assistance Comprehensive Opioid Stimulant and Substance Abuse Program funding, working to strengthen the collection and sharing of data across systems to understand and address the impact of illicit substance use and misuse. Here to help us with the discussion is Dr. Alex Kortolsky and Mandy Moore, from the Center for Forensic Science Research and Education. Welcome, Alex and Mandy. How are you? Hello, thank you for having us. I'd like to start hearing from both of you about how the Center for Forensic Science Research and Education oversees a collaborative effort for the identification, prevalence, and trends of new synthetic drugs. So our uh, efforts really span a whole host of different areas, uh, both scientifically and on the sort of trends and dissemination side. We have a whole bunch of different uh, data sources that feed into our programs. We have uh, seized drug data that comes from crime labs uh, or other law enforcement agencies around the country where we're able to identify drugs uh, in the street level supply or even some drugs entering the country. We have a large data set of toxicology data, both post-mortem toxicology data and DUID data. Uh, and recently, we've been trying to sort of ramp up our efforts on the clinical toxicology side as well, partnering with uh, institutions around the country that are seeing patients that um, are presenting to emergency departments with some sort of adverse events uh, suspected to be associated with some of these new drugs. So as part of that, we have a whole website that we now host and is sort of open access for anyone to come view. So we have a whole bunch of analytical reports, trend reports, public health alerts, 
Um, and if people want to access our, our website, they can come to www.cfsre.org or www.npsdiscovery.org. Um, they can see all the different reports we're putting together and all the different research work that we're doing. That's great. Can you tell us what brought you both to your current research and how you became dedicated to the dissemination of information surrounding the impact of novel psychoaptic substances? Because that is so important to a cutting edge topic. This really started back in 2013 when NPS and novel psychoactive substances and emerging drug threats were kind of on the radar after the big wave of the JWH um, substances in late 2008, there were new substances coming into the U.S. So we started trying to track them by um, monitoring recreational users at electronic dance music festivals. So we did that for a few years, and that was really kind of our first jump into uh, novel psychoactive substances, or also known as NPS. We found some really valuable information using people that were consuming these substances, and as we started to look for resources about what was emerging and what was up and coming, um, a lot of what we were finding is either that it was lagging, there was a big delay in what was being reported and how that was getting out to laboratories, or it was coming from places like Europe, which are a good source of information, but trends don't always translate across the ocean. So we were looking for a way to see for ourselves what was happening here in the U.S., and then also to make an impact in getting that information out as quickly as possible to laboratories and the forensic science community so they could implement it into their own workflows. That's great. And you've both been on the podcast before during the season titled Drugs. The episode covered your NIJ-funded research that was titled Evaluating Trends in Novel Psychoaptic Substances Using a Sentinel Population of Electronic Dance Music Festival Attendees. Do you have any updates for listeners or any other awards that you've been working on since then? So that funding that we had originally for uh, looking at NPS in these uh, EDM music uh, populations, we had that funding actually twice uh, for two two-year periods, so over a four-year period. And after that, we shifted gears a little bit looking at synthetic cannabinoids. Uh, but now we're back at looking at really NPS as a whole. Um, we have two exciting funding opportunities that we have been awarded for starting in 2021, uh, one of which will be funding really the discovery and dissemination of NPS information uh, that we get at our laboratory. And then we also have a funding opportunity where we are looking at uh, NPS and DUID populations, as well as some of the other drugs that may be prevalent in DUID cases, but may not be looked for in laboratories. So much has happened since that Just Science episode. I want our listeners to know that for the purpose of this discussion, we are considering novel psychoactive substances, or NPS, as emerging drug threats that communities are facing. So as we get started, can you tell us more about NPS discovery and how it is helping the forensic and clinical toxicologists combat the emerging drug threats crisis? Uh, so we launched our NPS discovery program now about uh, two or three years ago, really as a response to this void of information and really information sharing relating to NPS drugs uh, and then their adverse events or anything that's uh, sort of related to their use in recreational populations. Uh, so we've developed NPS discovery and have sort of expanded it into this new cyclic model where we first start out with gathering intelligence information. So there's a lot of information out there, whether it be uh, from the United States or from other countries around the world about new drugs that are emerging. 
Uh, sometimes we hear about these drugs on drug use forums. Uh, sometimes we hear about them because they're emerging in, in some sort of area and, and are identified at some crime lab. Um, we try to compile all that information to know really what the universe of NPS substances is. Uh, next, then, we sort of deploy our surveillance programs. Uh, so for us, our surveillance programs really go through the analysis of several different areas, as I talked about before, whether it be seized drug uh, samples, toxicology samples, for a whole bunch of different projects. We use those surveillance programs to discover new NPS. Uh, sometimes we're the first to find them. Sometimes we are finding them after they're reported somewhere else. We keep all that information together. Uh, once we detect a new NPS, we then shift to our monitoring phase uh, where we try and figure out, okay, well, how many times are we actually seeing this substance? So we don't just like to know uh, that we've seen the substance. We want to know how many times we're seeing it, how often we're seeing it, uh, what's the geographical distribution, um, is it only in seized drug samples, is it only in toxicology samples, are they mostly postmortem toxicology samples, are they antemortem toxicology samples, getting all that information together uh, so we can have some sort of uh, concerted response. And that's really the, the most important aspect of all this, getting that information out. Uh, compiling it all together, having having some meaning to the data so that way it can be used in a timely and sort of actionable manner. Uh, and then lastly, we move into our forecasting phase where we try to uh, look at what we've seen in the past and try to connect that back with our intelligence and, and maybe try and predict what the next new substances could be emerging uh, on the drug market. That's fascinating. And I'm sure so helpful in the forensic and clinical toxicology fields. How would you say that emerging drug threats are impacting communities that are working to support individuals with substance use disorder? Since uh, we've hit the COVID pandemic, I think a lot of attention has been shifted away from substance use disorders and the opioid epidemic, but this is something that hasn't gone away. It's something that's still very real and something that we need to focus still concerted efforts on addressing. And one of the things, as Alex has mentioned, that we're trying to do with NPS Discovery is provide resources to laboratories to identify these substances in their casework. So just putting out alerts of, hey, this is something we're seeing. We've seen it in a few cases. This is where we're seeing it at, and this is what we're finding it with. Not only that prong, but also putting out information of, here's what the spectrum might look like. One of the big challenges for laboratories in particular is getting access to these analytical standards to confirm these substances. But at least if you have something you can look at and cross-reference, maybe something that you've seen in your casework, um, it can give you sort of a clue and provide you with information about how you might need to proceed. That all in turn comes back to once you know what the problem is, you can start addressing it. But if we don't know what the problem is or what the scale of it is, you don't know what type of resources you need to devote to it. So I think that's what our big effort is, is addressing the problem and really identifying how big of a problem it is so that people can use our information to then work in smaller subsets to address it. And what are the major analytical challenges involved with novel psychoactive substances? Yeah, I think that really each laboratory probably has their own challenges just based on what their workflows are and what instrumentation they have. Um, but I think it really at a high level, one of the biggest challenges for many labs is really the difference between targeted and non-targeted testing. So if labs are looking to discover a new NPS, um, it's really not possible through 
the use of targeted methods where you're only looking for a subset of compounds. So really to combat uh, these emerging drug threats or these MPS, uh, you need to have non-targeted methods. You need to be prepared uh, well in advance to discover new substances that aren't within your library. Um, it needs to be something that maybe can be done retrospectively. Uh, so going back and looking through your data files, if you're acquiring them on a high resolution mass spec system and you're archiving that data, going back and trying to figure out when a, when a substance first emerged. Another big challenge right now, especially with the NPS opioids is sensitivity. Um, as we go through more iterations of these new substances, uh, typically they're getting more potent over time. I want to think about something like carfentanil, some of the newer NPS opioids, things like isotonitazine and borphine. Um, they're usually present at very low levels, uh, sometimes sub nanogram per mil levels. So that really requires increased sensitivity, uh, sensitivity that's not really there on GCMS platforms. That is really pushed towards uh, more of the LCMS platforms and really the newer age LCMS platforms that have that higher sensitivity. Uh, and then lastly, as Mandy mentioned before, uh, reference standards are always going to be a big thing. Uh, in forensic science, we need reference standards for comparison to be able to confirm and report out our results. Um, so that will always be a challenge for us. Can you tell our listeners how the Center for Forensic Science Research and Education has worked to mediate these analytical challenges? Sure. Uh, we've used kind of a variety of approaches. As Alex has kind of alluded to, um, we're using state-of-the-art instrumentation, and that comes along with working with various vendors to get collaborative agreements, to get access to these high-res analytical platforms. And then through using that, um, we've developed sort of a forward and a backward approach. So moving forward, we're getting sample extracts, so things that are coming into the laboratory that are ready to be discarded um, and running them on our high-res platforms to see if there is emerging substances. Uh, we do a pretty rigorous updating of our library. So we're always staying on top, trying to acquire new standards. If we get wind of something that might be coming in the pipeline, we're seeing if we can acquire that standard. If not, at a minimum, adding the accurate mass to the library so that you know we might get a hit for it. And then on the back end of that is what's known as data mining. So looking back retrospectively of data that's already been acquired to see if any of these new or emerging substances were identified. If so, how far back are we seeing them in the casework? What impact would timely access to case reports and reports of adverse incidents of impairment or toxicity have on clinical diagnosis and treatment, substance abuse, and forensic investigations? Uh, we think that uh, there's certainly uh, room for a lot of impact, uh, and that's really in a lot of different areas. Uh, as you mentioned. So, I mean, first is really just a better understanding of treatment. And that's why we've partnered with several different clinical institutions around the country, because you have these, whether they're emergency room physicians, clinical toxicologists, or people at poison centers, um, they are interested in really understanding how to better treat these individuals when they do present to an emergency department. Having reports on what substances are actually being used and causing these adverse events is very important. Uh, I think we forget a lot of times, in, uh, at least from a forensic toxicology perspective, that there is this whole population of users who are using NPS, but they're not ending up either in some sort of incident where law enforcement is involved or they're not ending up um, in some incident where um, they're now a post-mortem investigation. So um, it's really important. Some people may say that uh, understanding and knowing those drugs is more important to treatment and some may say it's not, but uh, our perspective is that really knowing what those substances are can help potentially impact treatment uh, in future work. 
Second is really the collection of more accurate statistics. So right now, uh, we certainly know we're within um, an opioid epidemic in the United States. Some people will say we're maybe either starting or in the midst of uh, a benzodiazepine epidemic in the United States. Um, but without having accurate reporting, we really don't know if some of those deaths are being miscategorized. Uh, if we're not looking for the right substances, if we're not uh, making sure that our testing scopes are up to date, if we're not including the collection of, of these NPS from different reports, our statistics may be skewed a little bit. And we want to obviously have the best statistics for CDC and other government agencies or state and local agencies to use. Um, another aspect when it comes to uh, forensic investigations is really discovering that true cause of death. Uh, so medical examiners, if they're using laboratories or they're not testing in-house for these new synthetic drugs, they may be missing causes of death. Um, and it may be just one case or it may be hundreds of cases. It all depends on uh, what drug it is and how prevalent that substance is in their community. But they want to make sure that, that uh, medical examiners are accurately sort of correlating these causes of death with these substances that are being used. Uh, and lastly, sort of go to a different population is the public health uh, side of things. Public health agencies are certainly very interested in these new synthetic drugs. If they know what these substances are, they can tailor their messaging or their reporting to uh, drug users and to their communities about the substances that are out there. Maybe they can develop special messaging about the dangers of new synthetic opioids uh, or other new synthetic drugs that are appearing in their community. Um, and that can really have a really big impact down the line. But it all starts with having that information, having those reports, and really having it in a timely manner, um, in a manner that's accessible to everyone. Can you share with us examples of how analyzing for NPS has impacted a community's ability to identify the drugs on their streets? Sure. Um, I think the kind of case in point for us uh, happened back in 2018. It was over the weekend and on Monday morning, we incidentally had to be or we're sitting down having breakfast at a, a meeting and there was all these news reports coming out of the city of Philadelphia that there were hundreds of people uh, overdosing uh, in Kensington, which is an area that has high rates of drug use. Um, and it was kind of being attributed to product known as Santa Morte. So we started doing some digging, uh, reached out to some of our colleagues in various agencies. And what we were hearing is that people were flocking to this product uh, because it was rumored to be the last pure heroin in the city. Um, but again, it was resulting in all these overdoses and a few deaths. So through some law enforcement, we were able to track down a product. So they had recovered some seized material at a decedent's home. So they brought it to our facility. And within 24 hours, we returned a result back to them. And we were able to identify that it was not only heroin in that product, but fentanyl, as well as a synthetic cannabinoid, 5-fluoro-ADB. So with that, um, they were kind of able to triage it. They knew what they were looking for. Clinicians in the city then knew that they were not only dealing with opioids, but synthetic cannabinoids, so they could adjust their treatment protocol. And that happened really quick. So again, within 24 hours, we were able to kind of get that information. So it goes back into our the importance of timely information, getting that out and letting people know what's on the street. From a user's perspective, um, I'm assuming the large majority of those people that thought they were buying pure heroin had no idea that it was being cut with a synthetic cannabinoid. Uh, in addition to Santa Muerte, we had uh, another incident involving synthetic cannabinoids that happened up in Connecticut, sort of similar to the story that Mandy told that's usually uh, involves a large number of people who are flocking to one area, who are looking to get their hands on some sort of drug product um, because there is some sort of 
uh, either a positive review or something about it that, that users want. Um, and in this case, it was users up in New Haven uh, that were flocking to this park to get this new product of synthetic cannabinoids. And in doing so, these individuals were using the substance. This resulted in many overdoses um, and really a very scary scene up there for law enforcement and for emergency medical services and clinicians, as you had all these different people coming down with these very adverse effects from synthetic cannabinoids. Sometimes people can be combative. Uh, sometimes people can uh, almost be in a state as if they've been using opioids where they're more asleep or almost unconscious. Uh, so it can be very unpredictable. Uh, in this case, we actually had clinicians from a hospital up in New Haven reach out to us um, and asked us to do testing because they really wanted to know what substances were, were in these uh, toxicology samples that they had collected. They were uh, urine samples and serum samples. And for hospitals, they don't test for synthetic cannabinoids. So without reaching out to us to do that testing, they would have had no idea what substances were present. Uh, so they sent us samples. We were able to uh, turn around those results for them, let them know uh, what synthetic cannabinoid it was. In a number of cases, I think they sent us about 30 or 40 cases to test. Um, we were able to get them uh, those results back so that way they could have an answer for what was going on in this very strange and very almost frightening uh, scenario. Are there partnerships needed so communities working to address the substance abuse crisis can utilize forensic tools for the detection and characterization of emerging drug threats? So yes, I think that is one of the biggest opportunities within this problem is getting everybody to start working together. There's so many different agencies spanning from all the way at the federal government, all the way down to the municipal level, um, but getting everyone talking and sharing those uh, resources and information is the biggest obstacle. So I think when you're looking kind of at the state level or within the local level, there's opportunities for law enforcement to work with our crime laboratories. A big indicator sometimes for us is what's found at the scene. Uh, so if there's some sort of pill packet or pills or any sort of paraphernalia that can be recovered, that's often a big important key um, that helps us to kind of pursue if we see there's a heroin packet, some sort of stamp, we can go down um, all kinds of rabbit holes trying to figure out what it is. But if we didn't know there was a heroin packet there, then you know, you're just kind of left in this big open field. So it can really help narrow the focus. I think one other important thing that we've really started to stress is the importance of the toxicology sections working with the drug chemistry sections. So the drug chemists oftentimes will see what's on the street before it becomes a problem within postmortem cases. So um, keeping that dialogue open, having pathologists involved in that, resource sharing within large organizations. So there are several different professional organizations. So getting out and presenting at those meetings of what you're finding in your laboratories. And then again, having that dialogue all the way up at the federal level. So it's important for what people are seeing at the state level to communicate that up to the federal level and vice versa. So what's being done at the federal level is coming back down to the states. I think that really is going to be one of the pathways out of this area of the epidemic that we're in. One of the other important prongs of uh, this is for the communities to all come together. We don't know what's out there if we don't have samples to test. So doing comprehensive testing and pursuing these leads is very important. Um, 
for us to be able to, like we said, identify these substances and know what the problems are. So without the samples, either postmortem that aren't tested comprehensively or even antemortem, another really great set of rich data that I think has been underexplored is coming from the hospitals. So getting all these different agencies to work together collaboratively to do the testing, I think is really important when you're talking about developing partnerships. The CFSRE is doing such a good job working with practitioners and local communities. How has the work of your division, NPS Discovery, within the CFSRE impacted the forensic community? As we mentioned before, through our efforts in information sharing um, and rapid dissemination, we've really tried to make sure that the work that we're doing is having an impact within the forensic science community. Um, We're really happy to report that we feel like we are making an impact uh, and agencies, whether they be federal agencies or local agencies, are starting to pick up on our information um, and use it really to their benefit. One of the uh, really big success stories that we've had is the use of our information in DEA scheduling. So our organization does not have a formal partnership with DEA. Um, However, we have worked very closely and shared that information uh, so that way DEA can use our information from toxicology testing when they're trying to evaluate whether a new substance needs to be scheduled or not. So one of the pieces that they're evaluating is really the toxicity, um, whether or not it's been uh, implicated in postmortem death investigations. So with our work in looking for these substances, uh, confirming them in death investigation casework, reporting those results out either through uh, the open access reports on our website or through the scientific literature, uh, DEA is able to pick up on that information and use it and cite it in their scheduling actions. Uh, So we've seen that twice now just this past year with isotinitazine, uh, which was an emerging NPS opioid, which emerged late in 2019, uh, but scheduling happened really around the Q2 point of 2020. Um, And then second was borphine, which emerged in the summer of 2020, when DEA just scheduled that substance in Q3 of 2020, uh, or maybe Q4, uh, but right around that time. Uh, So we're happy to report that. We feel like uh, that really is a great showcase of how our information can be used by uh, federal agencies, and we're happy to provide that information. Uh, We certainly have very many success stories on the lab level. Um, Our information, whether it be new drug monographs that have analytical data, or whether it be our trend reports are disseminated to labs throughout the country. We're able to use that information to identify new substances. Uh, We've heard stories of labs saying, oh, I had a a new substance in my lab, and we're able to use your analytical data to compare to see if that new substance we see uh, matches the substance you previously reported. Uh, We've heard stories from labs who are using our trend reports that say, now that uh, we know what's prevalent in the United States, uh, we're able to tailor our method developments. We're able to update our scopes appropriately. And the NPS world can be very large and very daunting at times. Uh, so when you're trying to develop a method and you're looking out there and you see, oh, there's a 100 fentanyl analogs, do I need to develop a method for all of these? Um, if you have information uh, like these trend reports, you're able to use that information to maybe tailor your method developments and what uh, might be important to your lab on either a screening side or a confirmation side. Uh, And then we've had some success stories as well internationally. So just in the NPS arena, there are several different players internationally, groups like the European Monitoring Center for Drugs and Drug Addiction, uh, which is abbreviated EMCDDA. Uh, as well as the World Health Organization. Those two agencies put out reports for the European Union um, and really for the world. 
on the assessment of new substances. Uh, so EMCDDA and WHO both put out two different reports. Uh, one's a critical assessment report and the other one's just an initial report on the substance. Uh, but both those organizations are using our information to include in those reports so that way other labs around the world uh, know how many times that substance has been identified. Uh, they know how many times it's been seen in postmortem casework. Uh, maybe how many times it's been seen in DUID casework. And they're able to pair that up with the other information that they get from the European Union and from other countries around the world for things like potency and toxicity on the pharmacology side or uh, information on the drug seizure side. Um, and are able to really put a comprehensive report together uh, for laboratories who are looking for that information or for scientists who are looking to learn more about these substances. What is next for the Center for Forensic Science Research and Education's efforts to combat emerging drug threats? We have got big plans uh, and we are so excited. I know I mentioned previously that we have funding that is beginning from the National Institute of Justice in January of 2021. Um, we've got great big plans to expand NPS discovery, uh, really to encompass a whole bunch of new aspects, a whole bunch of new data sets. Um, and we are excited to get that work done. So uh, as I mentioned before, under uh, our certain different areas of NPS discovery, uh, under our intelligence arm, uh, we are looking forward to doing some more work on drug use forums, uh, whether it be things like Reddit and Blue Light. We know that there's a lot of information out there from users who are using these substances. They may be going online and searching for new NPS uh, and then going straight to Reddit to ask if anyone else has used them, or they may be reporting uh, what some of their positive or negative reactions are to the substances. Uh, so there's a whole world of information there that we are excited to explore. Uh, another aspect of our intelligence gathering will focus uh, more on some of these drug patents from pharmaceutical or research literature. Uh, so we know that sometimes these new substances that we see are not necessarily new at all. They may have been previously reported or previously synthesized for uh, therapeutic purposes, but maybe never marketed. Uh, so we're going to try and uh, ramp up those efforts uh, in the future. Uh, under our surveillance uh, arm, we are going to continue expanding our uh, library databases to include new drugs. Uh, we'll continue sample mining uh, going forward and looking at new substances that emerge within forensic toxicology samples to really get a better picture, as Mandy mentioned before, of uh, the timeline of, of these substances and how long their, their life cycle lasts from first detection uh, to last detection. So we will be continuing to do that and hopefully doing that uh, for many years to come. Under our monitoring arm, uh, we are hoping uh, to continue to produce our trend reports, um, as well as some other important uh, reports that may uh, come from our monitoring initiatives, uh, whether it be in forensic toxicology samples or clinical toxicology samples. As I mentioned before, we are uh, ramping up our clinical efforts as well. Uh, and as we get more and more clinical partners, we'll be able to uh, get a better idea of how these substances or what substances are emerging within that clinical population. Next, under our response arm, we are very excited to uh, start producing what we are calling uh, NPS toolkits. Uh, so these toolkits will be able to be used by laboratories. There will be open access. Uh, so the information that goes into the toolkit will hopefully be all the information that a lab needs to assess a new MPS. So it'll have information about uh, analytical methods. We will run drug standards on our triple quad uh, systems here, as well as some of our other analytical systems. Uh, so the toolkit will have all that analytical information and data in it. Uh, so if a lab is looking to create a new method for an NPS, hopefully it can expedite that process. Uh, and there'll be additional information included in there 
about the substance, uh, some background information on the substance, if any potency or pharmacology data is uh, available for the substance. There'll be uh, recommendations based on uh, quantitative ranges if we do have quantitative data for the substance. We're really excited about these MPS toolkits and we're hoping that um, these will really be uh, or really expedite the lab's process for developing NPS methods and hopefully uh, relieve some of that burden that can be associated with uh, developing these new methods. Uh, and then lastly, we do hope to uh, get, as I mentioned before, we are trying to forecast what the next new substances are. Uh, so we are going to uh, continue doing that, hopefully maybe create an advisory board uh, for some of the leaders in the NPS arena uh, to see what we can come up with and maybe see if we, we can actually get ahead of these new substances. Uh, when you look at synthetic cannabinoids, if you look back, there certainly was an opportunity to predict the next new substances that were emerging. Uh, so we're hoping that uh, we can do some of this to, to try and get ahead of NPS trends before they get to us. Those are exciting efforts of the CFSRE and so impactful for the forensic and clinical toxicology field. Is there anything specific for 2021 that you'd like for listeners to be on the lookout for? So one of the really exciting opportunities specifically devoted to NPS is the NPS conference. Um, we were supposed to host it here in the U.S. Um, in 2020, but unfortunately that did not happen. It was online, but we are excited to be hosting that probably in the late summer of 2021 in Washington, D.C. So you can keep your eyes peeled for that. We'll have information on all of our social media channels as well as our website about that conference. So if NPS really gets your wheels going, uh, this is definitely a conference you want to attend. So what would you both like to see in the future in terms of your work impacting how communities face issues with emerging drugs? I think uh, one of the most important things is going to be uh, accurate testing and accurate reporting. Accurate testing, meaning laboratories have the appropriate methods in place when samples are coming through their laboratory, uh, working with their uh, state and local partners. Hopefully, we see a lot of great partnerships between public health and public safety because that's very important. I'm really hoping that the testing that is done uh, and the reporting that is out there is uh, very accurate uh, so that way we can create better statistics and really understand the NPS picture as a whole. Uh, and then the second thing that I am looking forward to, I guess you could say, or uh, hoping that we come to some resolution on in the near future is naming conventions for NPS. Uh, I know that there's currently a working group with RTI um, and CDC looking at sort of the taxonomy or the naming conventions that are associated with NPS, uh, but sometimes it can be a little bit hard to communicate within the NPS uh, arena if you're using different names. There's so many different synonyms, uh, so I'm hoping that the future will uh, have some resolution to that naming. And I think for me personally, um, one of the biggest things that I would like to see is that our contributions and the work that we do provide some solution, whatever that may be, that people are taking the work that we do um, and integrating it so that it becomes part of the solution. I think NPS has a long future ahead of it, but I'm hoping through NPS discovery and our work that we're doing at the CFSRE that we provide opportunities for people to either stay current or provide information to other agencies that then can provide funding to, again, come back and be part of the solution to curbing this big problem that we have here in the U.S. We're running near the end of our time together. Are there any final thoughts that you'd both like to share with our listeners? 
so I think I would just like to uh, remind the listeners that uh, the NPS market is a very uh, fluid and dynamic market. The substances that we were seeing six months ago or a year ago are not the substances that we're seeing today. Uh, so it does take some effort and some uh, sort of patience sometimes maybe if you're trying to discover what new substances you may have uh, in your jurisdiction. I uh, would just remember that a method that you developed a year ago or even two years ago may not be relevant today. And you really need to uh, keep up with trends and keep up with the national and maybe even international perspectives when it comes to NPS um, and how they're affecting our different communities. Yeah, I think I would just add that um, we're all in this together. So again, everyone being collaborative, working across agencies, across jurisdictions, finding resources to help you do the testing or whatever it may be. Um, There are a lot of opportunities and resources available. Uh, So you can always reach out to us and we'd be happy to provide any information that we have. And then the last thing that I think we owe a big thank you to is to NIJ for supporting our research Without their funding, uh, NPS Discovery would have never got started and would have never got off the ground. And we are very excited to um, integrate that funding into a new cycle and see where we can go next. I'd like to thank our guests today for sitting down with Just Science to discuss novel psychoactive substances as emerging drug threats. It was impactful to hear about upcoming solutions for the significant analytical and interpretive challenges that NPS pose to forensic and clinical toxicologists. The efforts of the CFSRE will benefit all communities working to address the substance use crisis. Thank you both for being our guests today. Thank you so much for having us. Yes, thank you so much for having us. And a shout out to all the listeners out there. Thank you so much for uh, logging in to hear us talk. If you enjoyed today's conversation, be sure to like and follow Just Science on your podcast platform of choice. For more information on today's topic and resources in the forensic field, visit ForensicCOE.org. I'm Paige Pressler-Jur, and this has been another episode of Just Science. For more information on this research topic, check out episode three of our drug season, Just Electronic Dance Music Festivals. Next week, Just Science interviews Bonnie Dunn, co-director of the West Virginia Healthy Grand Families Project, about a free initiative that provides information and resources to grandparents who are raising one or more of their grandchildren. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding.